You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Okay, so we are back in Paul's letter to the church at Colossae. Uh, This is four chapters, the letter of Colossians, four chapters, 95 verses, 1,979 words packaged up by God as a gift for you. And if you had to summarize all 95 verses, you had to bring all 95 down into three verses. To to boil it down and summarize it in three verses, the first three verses in our text uh, today are the summary. Uh, Look at Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 6. Here is the three-verse summary of the entire letter. Paul says, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Okay, so here's uh, what I want to do today. I want to work through the two commands uh, in this passage. And then we'll get to the the rest of of this passage and just how Paul lifts up Jesus for us to look at. So here are the two commands that we find in these first three verses. In a lot of ways, again, these three verses are the summary of the entire argument. Uh, What the point that Paul is making to this church, it's the summary of that. And here's the first command. Uh, Paul looks at this church and says to them, as you received Jesus... So walk in Jesus. As you received him, so walk in him. Now, one of the things I love about Paul is that Paul has a way of sort of cutting down to the core of the Christian life. He has a way of just getting down to the, to the root system of it to help us see what we need, what it's about, what it looks like. And here's what Paul wants us to see here in this passage. He is saying that take a look at your first step with Jesus You know that first saving step when you came to Jesus? Uh, Look at that first step toward Jesus. And that first step is just like your 15th step. Is just like your 15,000th step. Your 50,000th step. Your first step is just like every step in the Christian life. So he's saying look back to that first saving step. How did you receive Jesus. Now, that phrase, receive Jesus, in Paul's language, that is all talking about um, a person's response to to the initiating work of God in their life. So uh, it's synonymous with Paul's language of um, believing in Jesus, putting your faith in Jesus, Uh, receiving Jesus is synonymous with all of that language. It's just all Paul's language to say, here is a person responding to the initiating work of of God. So what does it mean to receive Jesus or to believe in Jesus or to put your faith in Jesus? Well, it doesn't just mean that we know and agree with facts about Jesus. This is where a lot of people in our culture get it wrong. Uh, Many people assume that if I um, know about these facts that Jesus came and lived perfectly and died in our place and rose from the dead. If I know about those facts and agree with them, um, then I have received Jesus or believed or put my faith in Jesus. That's, that's not true. It's not less than that, but it is more than that. So it's not just knowing and agreeing with these facts about Jesus. It's, it's yes, knowing and agreeing with the facts and then Jesus actually becoming real to us, for, for us to, to see Jesus and for him to, to become real and satisfying to our soul. It's so satisfying that this sort of chain reaction is unleashed in our heart. And here's what this chain reaction produces. Uh, it, it produces a willingness in us to turn from all of our sin. So we, we look at all of our sin, all of the sin that we know disqualifies us, 
all the bad we've done that we know that if we drug these things before the Lord, it would not go well for us. So, so we turn from all of the sin that we know disqualifies us, but, but we're turning not just from these things that we know disqualifies. We're also turning from our good works that we think somehow qualify us before God. Uh, that we're looking at our life and we're like, you know, all those good works, I think they might even outweigh the bad. So that when I bring these good works before the Lord, he'll be so impressed by me uh, that, that he'll receive me. It, it, coming to Jesus means, receiving Jesus means we're turning from all of that. The, the bad in our past, the, the, the good that we think somehow qualifies us, we're turning from all that. It's what the, the Bible calls Repentance. So, so we turn from all of that, and then we turn to the person of Christ. We throw our life upon the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We look to Christ. We remember Christ. We respond to Christ. We, we keep gazing upon Christ. This is what the Bible calls faith. And this is what it means to receive Jesus. It means to put your faith in Jesus, to believe in Jesus, to, to repent of our sin, and to respond in faith by throwing our life upon the person of Jesus. And it is only through faith, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that we are made right with God. Only through faith, in Jesus alone, are we made right with God. Now, that experience can look uh, much different uh, for us across this room. For some, it was an explosive moment. There were fireworks. It was amazing. And when we think about our past, we're, we're looking back and seeing that moment of receiving Jesus. And it is a very clear, identifiable, huge, massive moment. Uh, but for others, we look back and it was a season for us of uh, gradually going from turning from our sin and moving our life all the way in with Jesus. So it can look different. But here's one of the things this text is helping us see. But if we're going to be rescued by Jesus, it first requires receiving Jesus. There is no rescue apart from receiving. There is no rescue apart from believing in Jesus, putting your faith in Jesus, turning from your sin and moving your life entirely into Jesus. So this is a good time for us to stop and linger here. Has that moment happened for you? Have you received the person of Jesus? Have you responded in faith to Jesus, believing in Jesus, not just agreeing with some facts, but, but these things becoming amazingly real to you, satisfying to you, so satisfying that you would turn from your sin and come to Christ? Has that happened? If you get this wrong, it will not matter what else you get right in life. It is that, it's the most important question of your life. It is that big, that massive. Have you received the person of Jesus? Has that happened in your life? Has there been that turning from sin and moving in with Christ? If not, the Lord has providentially arranged a million circumstances to get you right here listening to Paul say these things so that this could be your moment, your moment of moving your life in with Christ. So if not, I mean, you can call out to God right now in the best way you know how, saying, here is my life. I am trusting in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus rescue me, save me. And he just stands so ready to do that. So right now, where you are, call out to God. Doesn't matter what else you get right if you get this wrong. So now, here's the point that Paul is making. He wants us to, to take a look back at that first saving step so he can say, as you receive Jesus, so walk in Jesus. As you received so what? Th think about this if you're married in the room. Uh, think about your wedding day. Uh, the day that you, in a lot of ways, received your spouse. Uh, on your wedding day, um, you didn't get married and then think, okay, now I'm going to go live by myself in the way that I want. 
No, it's not the end of your life with your spouse. It's the beginning of a whole new life with your spouse. And in the same way, when you receive Jesus, your, your wedding day with Jesus, if you will, when you receive Jesus, you don't receive Jesus and then think, okay, now I'm going to go live like I want, doing what I want. No, it is, it is the beginning of a whole new life with the person of Jesus. As you received, now walk in him. Paul tells us how to walk. You walk in the same way that you received. So you walk by continually turning from your sin. All that you know disqualifies you. Turning from all these good works that you think somehow qualify you before God. And you keep hurling your life upon the person of Jesus. Remembering Jesus, responding to Jesus, chasing after Jesus, trusting Jesus, leaning the entirety of your life upon him. Paul is looking at the church there and our church now, and he is looking at us and saying, church, you never outgrow Jesus. You never move beyond Jesus. For the rest of your days, for the rest of eternity, you move deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into the heart of Jesus. You walk in the same way that you receive. So listen to Paul's language in verse 7. Paul's just trying to illustrate this, to bring this to life for us. So he says, I'm rooted in him. It's the picture of a tree. A tree is an amazing thing. Under those branches, under that um, trunk, there is a vast root system connecting this massive tree into the ground, tethering it into the ground. And Paul is saying, just as a, as a tree is connected into the ground, you are, you're, you're to be rooted in, connected into the person of Jesus. This vast root system in your heart going deeper and deeper and wider and wider into the heart of Christ, rooted in him built up in him. It's the picture of a building. So Jesus is pictured, or think about a building first. A building is, is set upon a foundation. Without a proper foundation, you have no proper building. Without a foundation, the building is not going to last long. A building has to have the right foundation, right? And Paul is saying, just like a building needs a foundation, you need a foundation. And the foundation of your life is Jesus. He's the foundation. Now you build the entirety of your life on that foundation. There is nothing in your life that should exist apart from it setting on and, and being on the foundation of Jesus. Then he says to establish yourself in faith, in him. He's just saying you, you walk in the same way you receive. You, you root yourself in the person of Jesus. You build yourself on the person of Jesus. You establish yourself in the faith just as you were taught. Paul is saying here, friends, keep gazing upon the person of Jesus. Don't take your eyes off of Jesus. Keep chasing Jesus. Keep pursuing Jesus. Don't, don't look to the left. Don't look to the right. Just keep after Jesus. He is everything. He's above everything. So keep after the person of Jesus. And then he says in verse 7, abounding in thanksgiving. It is interesting when you read Paul, the emphasis he places on thanksgiving. In a lot of ways, um, he considers thanksgiving as a test. Maybe you can think of it as a looking test. Thanksgiving is a test of what are you gazing at? What, what, is your, what is your heart fixed upon? And Paul shows us that the more you look at Jesus, the more thankful you become. The more grace amazes you, the more thankfulness comes out of you. It's a looking test. Thankfulness. Paul's saying, as you receive Jesus, so walk in Jesus. Don't, don't take your eyes off of Jesus. Root yourself in him. Build your life upon him. Establish yourself in him. This is what, this is what Paul is, is getting at. And, and I think it's just a moment for us to linger and just ask the question is, is that what our life looks like? That when you think about your life, can you see a 
root system in you that is, that is moving deeper and deeper and deeper down into the heart of Christ. When you think about your life, could you genuinely say, my life is being built upon the person of Jesus, established in him? Could you say that? This, this is what Paul is, is presenting before us. This is what he's, he's asking. This is, this is what he's getting at here. He's saying, friends, I, I want you to keep your gaze at him. Just like you received him, now walk in him. That looking to Jesus, your gaze fixed upon Jesus, your heart tethered to Jesus. All of your attention, your, your life, your hope, your trust built upon him. Now, when you think about what Paul is getting at, walking with Jesus, just like you received him now, walk in him. When I think about walking, that doesn't feel like a hard thing. Uh, Paul, you're just telling me to walk with Jesus. Okay, I'm going to get about that work. That doesn't, that doesn't seem extraordinarily hard. But as the old song, Amazing Grace, reminds us, that walk with Jesus is full of many dangers, toils, and snares. So Paul looks at us and says, as you walk, you must resist. As you walk, you, you must resist. It's going to require resisting if you're going to be faithful in this walk. So yes, as you receive Jesus, walk in him. But as you walk in him, just know there's going to be a need for a ton of resistance. So Paul says in verse 8, see to it that no one, that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. Uh, in the Pilgrim's Progress, it was John Bunyan's, um, it, John Bunyan's work, it sold more books um, outside the Bible than any other book in Christian history. It's amazing. If you haven't read it, I would just commend it to you. Uh, maybe this summer would be a good time to, to read through the Pilgrim's Progress. But there's this one scene where Christian and his friend Faithful, they wander from the straight and narrow path. They drift off of that path. And as they drift off of that straight and narrow path, walking with Jesus, they are captured by a giant. And later we learn that the giant's name is Despair. So the giant captures them. He brings them back to uh, the dungeon of a castle. And the castle's name, we later find out, is the Castle of Doubt. And he locks them in the dungeon. And uh, there, littered around the, the dungeon floor, are the remains of thousands of former walkers, right? People who have been on the journey with Jesus, who the, the giant has captured, and they have withered away and died, just their remains littering the floor of this dungeon in the castle. And that picture has always sobered me to know that while we walk with Jesus, giants are lurking. As you walk with Jesus, giants lurk, looking to take us captive, to lock us in the dungeon of doubt, to keep us from seeing the beauty of Jesus, D diverting our attention away from Jesus. So Paul says, see to it that no one takes you captive. You're gonna have to resist. Now, how would they take you captive? Paul says, by philosophy and empty deceit. And just for clarity's sake, that's not an indictment against philosophy per se, right? It's an indictment against philosophy that is characterized by empty deceit, right? It's, it's, it's a philosophy that's characterized by human tradition. This is why he says, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world. Now, verse 8 is Paul's one-sentence summary of this church's problem. He's saying that these new teachers who have come into your church, uh, these new teachers are diverting your attention away from Jesus. They are distracting you. They, they are detracting from the centrality of Jesus. Right? They are eroding your confidence that everything you need in life is found in Jesus alone. This is what they're doing. And Paul is saying no to that. And listen, this is subtle. 
This is subtle. These new teachers are not coming into the church waving some huge banner and saying, Jesus is terrible. Everybody stop looking at Jesus. That's not what they're doing. Uh, They are coming in and they're, they're not denying Jesus. They actually like Jesus. They're not denying Jesus. They are just subtly adding to Jesus. It's subtle. It's just a subtle addition to Jesus. They're looking at the church and saying, you know the freedom and fullness you really want in your life? If you're going to get that, it's going to require Jesus plus something. For these uh, teachers in this church, it was Jesus plus this mixture of pagan beliefs and Jewish traditionalism. If you're going, if you're going to really have all the freedom and fullness you want, it's going to require Jesus plus this mixture of things. Jesus plus fill in the blank. This was their equation. Freedom and fullness equals Jesus plus something. Jesus plus blank. And friends, we are being sold that lie every day. If you want freedom and fullness, it takes Jesus plus something. Listen, it's not a denial of Jesus. It's saying, Jesus is awesome. You can like him, even love him. Just love this even more. It's saying, of course you need Jesus. Yes, no one's denying that you need the person of Jesus. I'm just saying you need Jesus plus this thing. Jesus plus fill in the blank. And Paul is writing this letter to this precious church and our church to say, never put anything in that blank beside Jesus. Don't do it. Don't put anything in the blank. Freedom and fullness is not found in Jesus plus something, but in Jesus alone. And anything that shows up beside Jesus is gonna be like a radioactive poison. You just give it enough time and it will eat you from the inside out. Freedom and fullness are not found in Jesus plus anything. Freedom and fullness is found in Jesus alone. And there's a thousand things that could be in that blank, isn't there? Freedom and fullness is going to be found in Jesus plus that new possession. Jesus plus that house. Jesus plus that boat. Jesus plus that, just fill in the blank of whatever your thing is. It's freedom and fullness. What what I want, it's going to be found in Jesus plus a swelling bank account. In Jesus plus a little bit of achievement. In Jesus plus a measure of notoriety and fame. In Jesus plus, I mean, just feeling that we are all so prone to put something in that blank. Freedom and fullness will be found in Jesus plus this. And Paul is saying, no, there is nothing else needed. It is found in Jesus alone. That's where freedom and fullness is found. And listen, there's a really spiritualized version of this as well. And I think this is actually more true to what these teachers were doing in this church. They're looking at this church and saying, okay, you've got Jesus. And we all agree, Jesus is awesome. Right? You've got Jesus. Now, here is what you need. If you're really going to find freedom and fullness, you need to move beyond Jesus into these deeper things over here. That's what you really need. They're looking at the church and saying, listen, Jesus is great. He he is amazing. But Jesus is like this door. And here's what you need to do now. You need to move past the door into this amazing house to discover all of these deeper things. Um, Or you could think of it this way. They're looking at the church and saying, Jesus is like um, baby food, like milk for you. And of course you need milk. Everybody needs milk when when you're a newborn. Uh, But you're no longer a newborn. So if you want to like grow and like mature into an adult with God, what you need is to move past Jesus, the, the milk, and you need to get to the meat and potatoes. And Paul is looking at the church and saying, no, no, that is not true. After you receive Jesus, you don't move on to bigger and brighter things. He's saying, listen, church, he is the big and the bright thing. 
It's, it's Jesus. You never outgrow Jesus. You never move beyond Jesus. Jesus is not just the door of the house. He is the whole house. You just move deeper into the heart of Christ. He is not just the, the baby food. He is the baby food and the meat and potatoes. He is all that you need. That, that is what Paul is saying here. And Paul is just inviting us to, to come in and explore more and more and more and more of the heart of Christ. So let's linger here for a moment. Do you have anything in that blank beside Jesus? Freedom and fullness will be found in Jesus plus this. Is there anything in that blank for you? Maybe you could ask it this way. This is really the, the point that Paul is driving at. It, Paul is asking us to consider this question. Is Jesus big enough and bright enough for your heart to really believe that he's enough for you? That he's enough. You don't have to have Jesus plus this thing Jesus plus this type of life, Jesus plus fill in the blank. Is Jesus big enough and bright enough so that you can honestly say, he is enough for me. He's enough. That's the question Paul's confronting us with here. Is he enough for our heart? So Paul is saying, as you receive Jesus, so walk in Jesus. And here's the second thing he's saying. This is the second command. As you walk, you must resist. Do not let anyone take you captive. Now that begs the question, how do we resist? What does it look like for a person to resist being taken captive? And here's Paul's answer. And, and you're going to see the answer in verses 9 through 15. Paul's answer is, you resist by continually, always, for the rest of your life, gazing upon the person of Jesus. That's how we resist. It's, a, it's really an amazing thing that Paul does in this letter. Uh, there's a big problem going on in the Colossian church, right? Uh, they are putting something beside the blank. Or beside Jesus. Something's in the blank. It's Jesus plus this is what I really need in life. And, but it's, it's so interesting that in the, in the space of the 95 verses that Paul gives to address this church, he focuses very little time and attention on the problem. Paul's strategy to correct the problem is just to say, I, I'm not going to deal a lot with the problem. I'm just going to lift up the person of Jesus for you to gaze at, for you to stare at, for you to fix your attention on. And if you'll just fix your attention upon the person of Jesus, here's what's going to happen. The problem is going to be corrected. So he's just saying, if you want to resist, keep staring at Jesus. Now, here's what Paul does for the rest of our passage. He just gives us thing after thing. I'm going to point out six of them. Just things that Jesus has done and accomplished for us as a way to say, let me just platform the person and work of Jesus. And then I'm going to invite you to just fix your attention right there on him. And he could have given another six, another 50, another 100 of them if he wanted. He just picked six things out and said, let me just platform these things and just allow us all collectively as a church to consider, to fix our eyes, to gaze upon the person of Jesus. What has Jesus done for you? Here are six things that Paul mentions. Number one, he filled you. He, he filled you. Every person in this room wants freedom and fullness. We all want the deepest places of our soul satisfied. And Paul shows us where to go to get it. Jesus alone. Look at verse nine. For in him, for in Jesus, the fullness of deity dwells bodily. In other words, Paul is saying, Jesus is God. The fullness of God resides in the person of Jesus. For in him, fullness of deity dwells bodily. Verse 10, and you, 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 this is what's happened to you. This is what Jesus has done for you. You have 
passively received this from Jesus and you have been filled in him. I love how the NASB translates it. You've been made complete. You have been filled in him. For all of those who have received Jesus, the fullness of God has filled you. That is Paul's way of saying everything that you need in life, everything you need, the grace you need, the comfort you need, the joy you want, the significant your, significance your heart craves, the safety you desire, everything that you need is in Christ alone, in Jesus alone. Everything you crave is found in Christ. That's what Paul's saying here. I love how uh, Charles Spurgeon talked about this. He said, you have everything in Christ that you need. You are fully furnished in Christ. You are completely supplied and equipped for all service because Jesus has, has filled you. So you need, now listen to his application. So you need not go to Christ for the supply of some of your needs and elsewhere for others of your needs. He says, no, you can come to Christ for all of your needs. For every single thing you need, Paul is saying you can come to Christ. The one who has given you everything, he's filled you. Secondly, he saved you. He's filled you and he has saved you. Look at verse 11. In him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Okay, a little bit of background work here. In the Old Testament, physical circumcision was the, maybe you could think of it as the token or the seal of sort of a covenant relationship with God. It was a way for the people in the Old Testament to say to God, it was this distinctive sign that they were wearing externally so they could say to God, um, you are our God and we are your people. That, that's what circumcision was, this outward sign saying that. So when you think about uh, circumcision in the Old Testament, that outward sign was always intended to point to an inward reality. So when Paul says here in this text, in him also you were circumcised. But then he adds this, with a circumcision made without hands, by Jesus without hands, he is saying, listen, I'm not talking about the external mark on a flesh. I'm talking about this inward reality of you looking to God and saying, he is my God and I am his, I am his son, I am his daughter. That's what he means by circumcision, this inward circumcision, not made in the flesh. That's what he's talking about. Maybe you could just think about it this way. He's referring to your conversion, to the moment that you stepped across the line of faith when God brought you into his family. When you're looking at the triune God of the Bible and you're saying, he is mine. That's the circumcision Paul is talking about. That saving circumcision, your conversion. And how did Jesus do that? How did Jesus save us? Well, this text tells us by putting off the body of the flesh. Your saving, or, or we can think of it as your spiritual circumcision, right? Your saving cost Jesus much more than a small piece of his flesh. It cost Jesus all of his flesh his entire body, the entirety of his life. And what Paul is doing here is he's just saying, I, I want to lift up the dying love of Jesus for you. And church, I just, I just want to get out of the way and let you stare upon the dying love of Jesus. Just for, for you to get in your mind's eye, Jesus dying in your place on the cross. And I just want to let you gaze upon that. I just want you to hear Jesus saying, this is how much I love you. This is what I would do to make you my own. I would give my very life to save yours. 
Paul's just saying, I want, I want you to gaze upon that, stare upon that, fix your eyes upon that for the rest of your life, for all eternity. Just keep looking upon the dying love of Jesus. He's filled you. He has saved you. Thirdly, he made you new. Verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Uh, here in two weeks, uh, we're going to have another baptism Sunday. Are they not the best Sundays of the year? They're amazing, aren't they? Uh, yeah, just uh, incredible. So if you have met Jesus, you've received Jesus, but you've never publicly declared your receiving of Jesus. We would love to celebrate with you here in a couple of weeks. You can go to Stonegate.church, upcoming events, uh, register for baptisms. We would love to kind of start that journey of getting you ready for that and celebrating with you in two weeks. But think about what baptism is doing. Baptisms are a visible sermon. As you watch the person go under the water, here's what you're seeing. That old part of them, that old sinful nature, the flesh, the Bible calls it, that part of us that's always been at war with God, distrustful of God. It's this picture of that old us being submerged into a watery grave, buried forever with Jesus. And then when they come out of the water, it is this picture of the newness of life that Jesus creates. That when God saves us, he makes us a new person. It's 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. Behold, the new has come. If you've received Jesus, you have been made new by Jesus. God has come down into the center of your heart the deepest place of your soul, and he has planted new life in the deepest places of your soul. He has made you a new person. And I, I just can't help but think there's probably a lot of us in here that need to, that need to just remember that today. We're frustrated at our life. We're frustrated that we keep falling into the same sins and the same patterns. It feels like we're just not making any progress. It doesn't feel like we're new. Just hear Paul look at you and say, if you have received Jesus, you are a new creation. He has made you new. And that new you that he's planted in the deepest parts of your heart, it is slowly but surely working itself out into all of your life. You know, when you think about each of our lives, we all want change in our life. I mean, we would all, I, if we could just go around this room and hear all the stories, uh, we would hear many stories of just wanting more of that anger in us to be put to death, more of that jealousy and that ugly envy to be put to death in us, more of that uh, sort of perverted lust to be put to death in us. We all want that. And Paul is saying, if you want that, don't look to things other than Jesus for that. There is only one way to get there. It is to look to the one who has made you new to, to, to get there. If you want change, that's the one you look at. Jesus, don't, don't look at something else in the blank. No, no, that is not the way. Keep your gaze fixed upon the one who has made you new, a new creation. He has made you new. Fourthly, he has brought you to life. Look at verse 13. And you were dead in your trespasses. Our problem in life is deeper than our deeds. Our problem is that we are dead. And, and deadness means that we are spiritually unresponsive and on our way to eternal ruin forever. Paul's saying for those who are outside of Christ, outside of Jesus, your situation is more grave and more serious than you can possibly imagine. You are spiritually unresponsive on your way to eternal ruin, but God. But God made you alive together with him. The grace of God meets us in the grave of our sin. And the grace of God crawls down into that grave with us and the grace of God breathes life into our lungs. The grace of God gets our heart beating again 
and brings us to newness of life. Jesus made you alive together with him. So Paul's saying, why would you look to anything but the one who has resurrected you? Why would you be enthralled by anything other than the one who took your dead heart and made it beat? Say, just keep looking at the one who gave you life. Fifthly, he forgave you. Verses 13 and 14 are just an amazing two verses. And you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, but God made alive together with him, having forgiven all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. I, I love the imagery here. Your sin is pictured as debt. Uh, yesterday, I took a look at the total of the U.S. debt. You know what that is? Over $28 trillion. That just couldn't end well, could it? I mean, that is over $28 trillion. Now, I, $28 trillion is so big, I don't even know how to think about it. I mean, can you imagine if someone spread $28 trillion $1 bills in front of you? I mean, I, I don't even know what that would look like or me. It's just such a massive number that it's hard to um, calculate and understand. But I do know this. If I woke up tomorrow and someone said, Rodney, you have a $28 trillion debt, it would take me about a third of a second to understand this. I will never be able to pay that. It is unpayable for me. And that's the picture Paul wants you to have of your sin debt before God. Every sin you have ever committed, past, present, and future, has mounted up and been calculated into an unpayable debt. Everything Jesus said do that you didn't do, debt. Everything Jesus said don't do and you did it, debt. Every sin in action, attitude, and affection, all going to, to this unpayable, no way to work yourself out of debt. But Jesus has canceled the debt. I love this phrase, having forgiven all our trespasses. I love that word all, because that word all is reminding us that Jesus hasn't just forgiven the lightest of your sin, the nicest of your sin, the, the, the lightest of, no, he, he hasn't just forgiven those. He has forgiven the worst of your sin. The heaviest of your sin, those sins that you hope nobody will ever find out about. He has forgiven all of your sin. So Paul's saying, why would we look at anything other than Jesus? Just keep gazing at the risen Christ who has paid your debt, forgiven your sin. How did he do that? He did it by by setting it aside, by nailing it to the cross. I love how one author put it. He said, the cross of Christ is the grave of our sin. So Paul's saying, we just keep looking at the cross of Christ. We just keep looking at Jesus. Don't ever turn your attention away from him. He forgave you. And lastly, he conquered for you. Imagine someone asking you the question, why did Jesus come? There's a lot of things the Bible says in answer to that question, but here is one of them. It's found in 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. John says this, the reason, the reason the Son of God appeared, the reason that he came in bodily form, lived, died, rose from the dead, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil to destroy the works of our enemy. Uh, Genesis 3 sets the stage for this. Our first parents sinned against God by eating the forbidden fruit. And God pronounced a judgment on the man, Adam, the woman, Eve, and the serpent, the deceiving serpent, Satan. And in Genesis 3.15, God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That's God saying there will come a day 
when one will be born, born of a woman, and the whole Old Testament is looking with eager anticipation to that day. And then the New Testament comes and, and the New Testament announces the name of the one who will be born of the woman. His name is Jesus. And there upon the cross, Satan bruised the heel of the Son of God. But with his dying breath, Jesus crushed the head of the serpent. Or as Paul says in Colossians 2, verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. In the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, Jesus defeated our enemies. He conquered our foes. And with imagery that everyone in the Roman world would recognize, Paul says, he put them to open shame, triumphing over them. It's this imagery of a conquering Roman army bringing back the spoils of war to a celebrating city, leading the, the enemy, the conquered king, behind the conquering king coming back into the city. Spurgeon again, Charles Spurgeon says it this way, the Lord Jesus Christ has done everything for his people. Everything. We didn't do any of these things. He has done all of these things for his people. He fought their battle. He won their victory and on their behalf celebrated the triumph in the streets of heaven leading captivity captive. What more then do we need? What more than do we need? He says, your enemy is vanquished. Your sins are blotted out. Your death has been changed to life. Your necessities are all su supplied. And then I love this last phrase. He says, surely Christ is enough for us. Surely Jesus is enough for us. This, this is what Paul's saying here. He, he's, he's looking at the church and saying, surely, surely Jesus is enough for us. We need nothing in the blank. Freedom and, and fullness is found in Jesus alone. Surely Christ is enough for us. Let me close with this imagery that we find in Ephesians chapter three. I, I love this phrase that Paul uses to describe the good news of Jesus. Paul calls it in Ephesians chapter three, verse eight, the unsearchable riches of Christ. That's beautiful imagery, isn't it? The unsearchable riches of Christ. With that word unsearchable, Paul is not saying you can't search it. Paul is not saying you shouldn't search it. Paul is saying, yes, search it for the rest of your life. And here's what you're going to find while you search it. You can never get to the bottom of it. The heart of Jesus is like this vast mountain range. And as soon as you get to, to the to the mountain range in front of you and you peek your head over the top of the mountain, you discover there are endless mountain ranges in front of you. That is the heart of Jesus. And Paul is saying, church, don't think of Jesus in a small, shrunken and, and insignificant way. No, he is the unsearchable riches. He is everything above everything. So spend your days, the rest of eternity, searching in the unsearchable riches. Plunge your life into the treasure of Jesus. Discover one heart-pumping jewel after another forever. Paul's inviting us in and just saying, don't be held captive by anyone who would say, oh, and add something to him. Don't be captive by anyone who would say, really what you need is that unsearchable treasure and this. Paul's saying, no, all you need is found in the unsearchable riches of Jesus. So, so give your life to exploring it. Search as much as you can of it. And in a trillion years from now, you're gonna find your heart continually enthralled by him. Don't turn to the right or the left. But, but keep your gaze focused on the person of Jesus. Don't let anyone distract you from that. Don't let anyone seduce you into thinking you need Jesus plus this. No, no, you don't. Just keep gazing at the one who has filled you. 
saved you, made you new, brought you to life, forgiven your sin, conquered your enemies. Keep looking to that one, Jesus. Church, may we do that. May we live plunged into the unsearchable riches. Will you bow with me there where you are? And I'm gonna give you just a moment to respond to Jesus. I'm gonna give you a moment for the Spirit of God to press into you what would be most helpful to wipe away everything that wouldn't be, to, to show you what, what is it that you need to hear from God today, see in the person of Jesus today. And I love that we are ending today with communion. C communion is a way for us to gaze upon the person of Jesus. To look upon the dying love of Jesus. To stand in amazement at this God who would give his very life for ours. And let me remind you who communion is for. Communion is for those who are in relationship with God. So if you have not received Jesus, take Christ before you take communion today. Turn from your sin, throw your life upon him. Have you done that? Has there been a moment in your life where that has happened? It doesn't matter what else you get right if you get that wrong. And listen, we're, we're all gonna be before Jesus way sooner than we think. So don't procrastinate that. Don't think, well, I'll get to that tomorrow or next week or next year. No, this is your moment. Receive the person of Jesus. Push your life in with him. And just the best way you know how, call out to God and, and say, God, here is my life. Rescue me. But communion is not just for those who are in relationship with Jesus. It's for those who are in right relationship with Jesus. So maybe this morning you are finding that you have just veered to the left. You have veered to the right. You have put something else in the blank beside Jesus. And Paul's just inviting you back. Before you get enslaved by the giant, locked in a dungeon somewhere, he's just inviting you back this morning and saying, why don't you just come back to Jesus? Turn your eyes, turn your gaze back upon the risen Jesus. I just wonder how many of us need that today. So God, would you help us see these things? Would you give us willing hearts, responsive hearts to say yes to what you're laying before us this morning? God, help us. And it's in your good name that we ask it. Amen.